Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, the episode that we just put out Tuesday was, of course, on Ebola, where we talked about uh, about the, the virus itself, about how it spreads, about how we can attempt to treat it, and uh, how it plays into a, the, the current uh, sort of global climate, the, the global ideas and fears and paranoia regarding that uh, particular virus. So in this episode, we're going to talk about another closely related topic here, and that is quarantine, because that inevitably, that's that's a lot of, of what we're talking about when we're talking about Ebola, because quarantine is necessary uh, to protect those that are treating the illness. Yeah, and it also is one of those things that kind of uh, plays into the whole Hollywood sensationalized idea of what a quarantine is. So yes. whether or not you're drawing that from your from ET, you know, when when the government comes in to like quarantine the house and, right. and get ET, because it's scary, right? People in suits in and they've suits. wrapped the house in in uh, in this uh, giant plastic bubble. Yeah. Or if you're even thinking about the movie Outbreak, again, it's the it's the men in suits. You know, it's sort of like the um, storm. They look like stormtroopers, except for definitely not as you know hard schooled. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's it's very much the idea that you have you have become something alien because you were infected or may have been infected, and I look like something alien now because I'm in this dehumanizing suit. Like, there's a yeah. very dehumanizing level to it, and then. On another level, and we were talking about this in email uh, just the other day, there's a dramatic sense to this, too. There's the old saying, you don't bring a cannon on the stage unless you're going to fire it. Mm -hmm. And I feel essentially the case is you do not introduce quarantine into a TV show, movie, novel, book, comic book, etc., unless somebody is going to break quarantine. Yeah. So it gives us this kind of uh, skewed fictional idea about what quarantine is, how quarantine works, to what degree quarantine is effective or is or is ineffective? I mean, we just have a, a very unreal vision of what it is. Yeah, and I was also thinking about Dr. Alan Jameson. He is a uh, retired doctor who was working with medical teams international to treat Ebola patients, and he recently returned home to Tennessee in the United States, and he quarantined himself. Mm-hmm. I think he did this not because he had any symptoms of Ebola, but I think he understood that this topic right now is so supercharged and so emotionally just laden with fireworks with people getting angry that he was like, whoa, 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 guys, before you start, you know, congregating around my house with (laughs) with pitchforks and fire, I'm just going to I'm going to lay low 21 days just to make sure. So don't anybody get crazy. So I thought that was a smart move on his part because he is isolating himself. His you know family's dropping off food on his porch. It's a great excuse too to get out of social commitments. I'm yeah. so I'd love to go to that baby shower, but I mm-hmm. just got back. I really am. I, I, I'm not sick. There's nothing wrong with me. But just to be on the safe side, I can't I'm gonna, go. Yeah, I'm going to quarantine myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to the next time I get an evite for a baby shower. I'm going <laughs> to put that in my no reply. Sorry, I'm in quarantine. Self quarantine. You know. Sorry. So why would you quarantine someone, or why would a community quarantine itself? Um, viral strains like tuberculosis mm-hmm. might be a reason. Uh, bioterrorism has been thrown around as well. The right. the idea that you might use one of these viral strains in warfare and, and try to contain it. Yeah, I mean, in, in this at this level of the scenario, it plays out exactly like it does in the movies. There's something uh, there's something either unknown uh, that that is potentially uh, communicable, or it or it is very much a danger. It can something that can, can spread 
and potentially become a, a major outbreak. Uh, so you want to contain it. You want to keep it from jumping to new individuals. And when we talk about outbreak, epidemic, pandemic, let's give a little bit more definition to that. Um, this is actually from WebMD. Uh, they say that with an outbreak, we're talking about a disease outbreak that happens when a disease occurs in greater numbers than expected in a community or region during a season. So the flu would be a good example of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then an epidemic. An epidemic is when an infectious disease spreads rapidly to many more people. And this may be just within the same region. It may involve several countries. It, it's, it, it can, it can, it can vary in size and still be an epidemic. And then finally, you have the idea of the pandemic. In a pan, in, in a pandemic, you're dealing with a global situation. Uh, and in, examples of this would be AIDS, HIV, and uh, various strains of influenza. Yeah, and just to go back to epidemic, SARS is a good example oh, of yes. that. Yeah. So I like to think of these also in terms of uh, of Beatlemania, right? I mean, you have a, a very regional outbreak of enthusiasm over a particular musical act, and then it it grows and it becomes popular in other areas, mm-hmm. and it eventually reaches a point at which it's a global phenomenon. Okay, and it's the same thing with any kind, of, and essentially it's just a this is, in this case is a viral idea, a viral. Uh, uh, taste, uh, the music as virus, um, celebrity as virus that spreads. But, uh, but of course it's based on, uh, that idea is based on a very real model of how, uh, infectious agents spread through a species. Right. Beatles music spreading throughout a community, the world, great, but not so much <laughs> with, with a virus. Um, now we could go like, we, I don't know, for days about the history of quarantines because there's a really rich history. Mm-hmm. Imagine every single country has, has, um, you know, some sort of protocol in place or history with quarantines. So we won't go way deep in there, but just to give everybody an idea of, of the practice of quarantining in earnest, this began in the 14th century. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, what was happening is that there was this effort to protect coastal cities from plague epidemics. So ships arriving in Venice, which would have been the seat of power at that time, mm-hmm. from infected ports were required to sit at anchor for 40 days before landing. This practice called quarantine was derived from the Italian words quaranta giorni. Quaranta giorni. Quaranta means 40 and, and giorni means days. So that's how we got the term in the first place. During that same time, um, since, you know, the plague was a, a fact of life for hundreds of years in Europe and um, in Asia and the Middle East, finding sick people and quarantining, quarantining them was actually a job. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. And uh, what happened is that not many people really wanted to volunteer for it. So what you would have is uh, usually older women without any other means of income who would search dead bodies or really sick people. And... Um, they would look for these plague victims, and then they would announce to local officials where they had found them in the families, and they'd get a few pence for each body or for turning in a family that was harboring one of the bodies. Yeah, it's in, this is interesting to, to note because it, it's easy to forget, especially looking at the, the Western and United States model of quarantine. It, quarantine is largely self-reporting. It's more of an honor system. Yeah. I just came from somewhere. I think I might be sick. Yes, quarantine me because I want treatment if there's something wrong with me right and uh, maybe a distant second i don't want to get anyone else sick either but it's essentially there's gonna there's gonna be some self-interest there you go back to this older model and there is more of a sense of please don't board me up in my house uh let me 
be sick on my own and or die in peace. And and one of the problems is that you you see uh, there's a lot of space between those two attitudes, mm-hmm. and you find various points on that t- on that uh, line uh, elsewhere in the world right now, as we discussed in in our Ebola episode. Mm-hmm. One of the problems is that you have uh, you have locals who are going to be distrustive of outsiders who are coming in and saying, "Hey, let me treat you. Let uh, why don't you come into our tent and let us treat you for your problems, and then telling you how to uh, care for your dead, etc." Yeah, and then I think this example is like a really good sort of like how people might get paranoid because again they're trying to hold on to their family, and yeah. so you've got this person, this this older lady going around. She's the plague hunter, and you don't want her stopping by your home. But at the same time, this was a way to try to prevent further transmission. So you see, our, our modern quarantine practices, especially here in the states, kind of uh, evolved over time, and in, in, uh, in between state and local authorities. Um, uh, made uh, they've made uh, sporadic attempts to impose quarantine requirements over time, generally in response to what's going on in the world and what's coming in and crossing the border. Um, continued outbreaks of yellow fever um, finally prompted Congress to pass federal quarantine legislation in 1878. Um, outbreaks of uh, cholera from uh, passenger ships arriving from Europe uh, forced uh, some reinterpretations of this law in 1892, and this provided the federal government with more authority in imposing uh, those quarantine requirements. So much so that during World War One, 30,000 prostitutes were rounded up, um, not because they were, you know, dealing in prostitution. Um, it was because they were known to be hookers and the United States wanted their soldiers to be venereal disease free. Oh, good luck with that. Yeah. But, yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, so that, again, was an attempt to try to, uh, you know, quash any sort of transmission here. Then uh, moving a, a little uh, a little further on the timeline, uh, Public Health Service Act of 1944 established the federal government's quarantine authority for the first time, and this act gave U.S. Public uh, Health Service uh, responsibility for preventing the introduction, transmission, and spread of uh, communal diseases from foreign countries into the United States. Now, this uh, now originally part of the Treasury Department, uh, the Quarantine and Public Health Service, or PHS, um, the parent organization, became part of the Federal Security Agency in 1939, and in 1953, PHS and Quarantine joined the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Uh, and the quarantine was then transferred to the agency that we now know as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in '67, and the CDC remained part of the uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare until 1980 when the department was reorganized into the Department of Health and Human Services. And so today, the Division of Global uh, Migration and Quarantine is part of CDC's National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases, and that's headquartered right here in Atlanta. That's right. And just a, you know, a reminder, zoonotic um, is just referring to diseases that are transferred between animals and humans. All right. So when can the government quarantine its own citizens? Well, here in the U.S., under 42 Code of Federal Regulations, Parts 70 and 71, the CDC is authorized to detain, medically examine, and release persons arriving into the U.S. and traveling between states who are suspected of carrying uh, a communicable disease. And there's, there's quite a list of these. Yeah, the list includes diphtheria, infectious tuberculosis, yellow fever, hemorrhagic uh, fevers, SARS, and uh, any kind of new strain of influenza with pandemic potential. 
Yeah, and the last large-scale isolation and quarantine was last enforced during the influenza pandemic in 1918-1919. That's also known as the Spanish flu. Yeah, and that really uh, underscores, again, what we've said about uh, quarantining becoming more of an honor system situation yeah. here in the United States. Uh, because uh, beyond that, uh, that, that, that 1918 uh, situation, the only other... Uh, account that we have is that the CDC uh, issued an order in, in 1963 to quarantine a single woman for smallpox uh, exposure. So yeah. it's largely an honor system at this point. The, 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 the CDC is not running around uh, pulling um, uh, ET shenanigans on anyone and wrapping houses and holding people against their will. No, and I think the last sort of kerfuffle about this happened in 2007 when Andrew Speaker, an an Atlanta native, Mm -hmm. was placed under federal quarantine uh, because officials learned that with tuberculosis, he had boarded two transatlantic flights because he was he had a destination wedding. (laughs) <laughs> and he knew he had tuberculosis, but well, you know, when you got a wedding. I forgot about this case, yeah. Yeah, people were pretty upset about it. Um, so, you know, and he apologized and, and he said he didn't realize, uh, what a bad idea that was. Well, you can get a card for that now. The Hallmark, I'm sorry, I potentially exposed you to tuberculosis yeah. card. Yeah, they're, they're so funny too. Yeah. I love those illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, you know, officials found out they detained him in Montreal. Um, now if you were to break a quarantine, if you were put under, if he had from the get-go been put under quarantine and he broke it, that would be a criminal misdemeanor. And in 2009, a 27-year-old man in Arizona diagnosed with, same thing, tuberculosis, uh, was then quarantined in prison hospital ward for 10 months because he knew he had it, he failed to take his medicine, and he endangered others by going out and, and entertaining friends without wearing a mask. Ah. So, again, as you say, this is not like people are going to enter your house in a hazmat suit. Largely, it's self-reporting. Now, these laws can vary from state to state, and they can be really specific or broad. Um, in some states, local health authorities implement state law, and tribes also have police power authority to take actions that would promote the health and well-being of their communities. So, yes, there's a federal level to it, but there is very much a state level to it. Again, giving you this idea that probably the hazmat suit people are not going to show up uh, just because uh, the government is going to lock everybody down. So what happens when medical professionals suit up? Well, we've had some insight into that lately with the Ebola outbreak. And um, if you look at Dr. William Fisher's interview with Time magazine, he shows what it's like suiting up in the field. He has helped in uh, Guinea. And what he's saying is that, again, you want to minimize your exposure to blood, to vomit, to diarrhea, to any other fluids. So... They are all required to wear personal protection equipment, which starts with a base layer of scrubs that you then put a big, thick layer of boots on. And mm-hmm. We're talking like galosh kind of boots that go up to your knees. Then they put on an impermeable Tyvek suit that is incredibly hot, right? Because, again, this is trying to minimize the the any sort of airflow that might come in, trapping your own stinky, fetid smell, right? Right. And then you have two pairs of gloves. Then you place an impermeable hood over your head, neck, and shoulders, a respirator covering your nose and mouth, and finally goggles. 
everything is sealed. There is no speck of skin that is visible. So it's basically a full body prophylactic. Yeah, and I've seen it flippantly referred to as a, as a space suit as well, which isn't really that yeah. far off the mark. You're, you're essentially throwing up as many barriers as possible between you and the pathogen. Yeah, also, I read, I don't know if this was from the io9 article about all the, the odd quarantine things, but I read somewhere, no, it was actually in the Time magazine, that, uh, that astronauts from the moon landing, oh. the person, that they, when they came back, they were quarantined. And I guess that's sort of like, well, you never know. You know well, yeah, I mean, you, at the time, what, what else are you going to do? Uh, one of the important things, and we'll continue to, to bear this out, to keep in mind is that uh, the quarantine and, uh, and, and hazmat and just the effective handling of these situations, it's not, it's not just about, oh, here's the suit. It's not just about here is the, uh, the room and here's what's in the room. Mm-hmm. It, it's about, okay, who's, who's cleaning the suits? How are the suits handled after they're used? How are they provided? Who's, uh, who's, who's managing the people that are cleaning it? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, you know, the various training regimes that are involved and, uh, and how the, the, uh, the, the equipment is handled and just the overall sanitation and management of the whole process. And so there are a lot of moving parts there that have to be, uh, that have to be in, 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 in working order for a proper quarantine situation to take place. Yeah, and we'll look at that a little bit closer here when we talk about transporting someone who has a deadly virus. But I wanted to mention that at airports, and particularly right now, this is very active, the CDC operates quarantine stations across the U.S. in airports. And uh, officers are trained to spot symptoms of a virus, in this case, Ebola. And anyone who departs from a flight from an infected country and appears to have symptoms would be tested and if they test positive, they would be rushed to a hospital in quarantine. So there are officials who are trained in this, and they're on the lookout for it. There are uh, 20 U.S. quarantine stations located at ports of entry and land border crossings where international travelers arrive, and they are staffed with quarantine medical and public health officers from the CDC. And indeed, most notably to the news right now, we do have one in Atlanta, which we uh, acquired uh, when we had the Olympics here. And probably a lot of you have seen the imagery in the news of the jet, that the retrofitted jet that was yes. used to transport two U.S. citizens who were, were, were over in West Africa and who uh, contracted Ebola. And this thing is amazing to me. Yeah, because you have, a, it's almost like a container within a container within the airplane. Yeah. And it's, I feel like, like people are drawn to it as much because it's, almost a comforting image because you see in this plane a lot of money thrown at a single individual to uh, to keep to in the name of treating their illness but also in the name of preventing their illness from reaching anyone else but it also ends up sort of playing into that par- paranoia because it's because you look at it and you're like look at the tremendous precautions that were taken to protect us from what's going on here so it can yeah. at times be a, it can almost oversell it a little bit uh, in, in terms of just a public perception of what's going on. Yeah, it's like an $18 million Ziploc job, yeah, yeah. really, if you look at it. Uh, the plane is large enough to accommodate a medical crew, and it's outfitted with a modular aeromedical biological containment system. So we're talking about this tent-like plastic structure. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about the patient, um, you know, uh, he or her, they're, they're on the gurney, and then they are tented in plastic. Mm-hmm. And then they're put in another tent. And should there be any sort of um, 
instance in which there's a hole in that plastic or, or anything that would cause a puncture in it, then what would happen is that the air would actually rush in from the inside as opposed the air, as opposed to the air from the inside of of that tent going out. And the reason for this is that they actually have negative pressure within the tent so that that happens. Yeah, you just want to limit the airflow as as much as possible. I mean, basically cut it off uh, when it comes to breathing the uh, sick individual's air. Because, and remember that, the next time you were on an uh, on a flight somewhere, you're essentially cramming into this small, confined space with everyone, and you have this agreement, hey, everyone, we're going to all watch, um, you know, the movie Quarantine on our individual screens, <laughs> but we are going to breathe each other's air for the entire duration of this flight. Yeah, in this case, just imagine every single person individually tented so that no pathogens could could, uh, cross into the cabin area. All right, uh, so how effective is quarantining? Well, in a large part, it comes back to what I said earlier about there being a lot of moving parts. I mean, the the quarantine is more than just the suit or the room. Mm -hmm. It's to what degree can you actually instigate a quarantine? Do you have the, uh, for instance, if you're going to to use a quarantine um, uh, in, in another country, mm-hmm. do you have the uh, the means to carry it out? Do you have the personnel to carry it out? And then do you have the trust of the individuals involved in it? Uh, because if we've, we've discussed, quarantine has largely become an honor system situation here in the United States. But in cases where uh, where an individual is not trusting of the uh, quarantine situation, if they're going to break quarantine, well, then that throws a monkey wrench into the whole thing. Yeah, here's a couple of examples. Uh, one is from Dr. Howard Markle, who is the director of the University of Michigan Medical School Center for the History of Medicine. He looked to the past to see how effective quarantining was. And specifically, he looked at the Spanish flu pandemic in the U.S. in 1918. He looked at a bunch of cities. And he found that cities that early on adopted what he calls old-fashioned non-pharmaceutical interventions like school closures, social distancing in the community and workplace and quarantine and layered multiple interventions at once for a long period of time fared so much better than other cities who did not um, embrace any of those sort of closures. Uh, and, they, and when they finally did, they did it at slower rates. And so they had higher infections. So it's not just about quarantining. It's about these other layers of distancing the person from the pathogen. Indeed. Quarantine is just one tool in the overall toolbox of managing infectious diseases. Now, if you look at Sierra Leone, uh, which now has more cases of the Ebola virus than any other country in the regions, um, the quarantine isn't strictly enforced, and neighbors still continue to stop by grieving families who have been affected by Ebola. And we talked more about this in in the podcast episode on Ebola specifically, but as uh, our listener Jessica pointed out in the listener email that we read, the community bond is very important in Sierra Leone, a place like that. And so it's very hard to stop people from... Um, getting together and grieving for one another or, you know, even shutting down that part of their, their lives that is so integral to day-to-day survival. And then you think about how these developing nations, they lack the public health resources needed to, to really enforce this in the first place. Yeah. And the distrust of government and medical uh, professionals and so on and so forth. And you can kind of see how this isn't really coming together as it could. 
So we have an example of how quarantine is done in the U.S. We have, we've talked about the ways that we have uh, attempted quarantine in the past throughout history. Uh, but do, do we have another international example of quarantining in action? Yeah, and this is extreme. Okay. This comes um, um, from China, and this was just in July of this year, uh, 2014, in which authorities lifted a nine-day quarantine of 151 individuals from the city of Yumen, which was instituted after a 38-year-old man died of the bubonic plague infection. So here's the other thing about it. That's not so crazy. It's that entry and exit points were also sealed off, trapping nearly 30,000 residents. Now, no other cases (laughs) had developed, but we have to contrast this to something that happened in the United States during the same time frame. Uh, health officials quickly treated and released four Colorado patients who had been hospitalized and diagnosed with the more lethal and more contagious pneumonic plague. Hmm. And that's the respiratory form of the disease. And you can see how that would be more contagious because it's uh, airborne. And still, no other cases have been reported here in the, U- the U.S. of the pneumonic plague. So... When you look at that, you kind of say, well, what in the world is going on? Is it an overreaction from China? Is it an underreaction from the United States? And some health professionals would tell you, look, we have more information now. We have better testing. We know how diseases act. So we are able to treat those people and send them on their way. There wasn't a need to, like, shut down, you know, a a large swath of the United States and, and not let anybody leave it. Right. So, so the argument would be that the, the Chinese approach was maybe a little archaic, uh, because it didn't, didn't match up with our, our, our current, uh, understanding of, of how these, uh, illnesses work and how we can treat them. It could be archaic, but it could also be on the part of Chinese officials of, hey, we have a, one of the largest populations right. in the world, and therefore we need to be stricter. Like, okay. With. And the argument can be made that the, the Chinese simply responded with the model of, uh, of, of treatment that worked best for that particular situation. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And it's got to be, you know, I would say in that scenario, it probably is scary for nine days that there's entry points and exit points that you cannot access and you could sort of wonder what's going on mm-hmm. if you're in that community. Um, that being said, you know, hey, all is well that ends yeah, well. Yeah, both, both worked, so yeah, can't, can't blame either side. All right, so there you go. Quarantine in a nutshell what it is, how it works, where it came from, to what degree it's effective or ineffective. Again, be sure to listen to that Ebola episode uh, that aired uh, just before this one, if you haven't had a chance to yet, because that directly ties into everything we're talking about here. And, you know, we're looking to possibly do uh, some more content on infectious diseases uh, in the future. Uh, For for my part, I always find them interesting. And so uh, if there are particular uh, diseases, uh, viruses, pathogens, what have you, that uh, you think are highly interesting, that you would like us to cover, let us know, and uh, and we'll consider uh, looking into them. Uh, as always, you can find us at stufftoblowyourmind.com. You have a question about what we do. You want to see the stuff that we've done. You want to check out our podcast episodes, all of them that we've ever made. You can find them at that website. You can find our videos. You can find our blog posts, pictures of what we look like, uh, links to our various social media accounts. It's all there at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Uh, be sure to check out Mind Stuff Show on YouTube. If you're a YouTube user, you're a YouTube fanatic, go there, subscribe, follow us, comment on our videos. Uh, we try to engage the viewers there as much as humanly possible. And, uh, yeah, check that out. 
Yeah, and if you have some uh, thoughts percolating on quarantines, if you've ever been involved in one, let us hmm. know. Um, also, make sure you check out io9's article, 10 of the craziest things that you never knew about quarantines, and check out the one on typhoid Mary. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um, all right, send your swirling thoughts to us at BelowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 